Hi everyone and welcome back to Legends of Read. As we are busy working in our editing workshop with our editing elves, I'm pleased to share with you an episode contributed by Ola Christian Dahl. This was an interview conducted during the Polish Pursun Festival, Prasovnia Fogociste, as Ola interviews his former teacher Roger Bernstinger. Thank you so much for the wonderful guests and hosts for releasing this episode to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed and we will be back very shortly. Welcome to our last presentation. This is Pracownia Fagocisty. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for attending all our lectures and presentations. And now it's time to enjoy our last, it is going to be interview with Roger Bernstingel. And for that interview, I have a special guest who will be interviewing Roger and that is Ole Christian Dahl. So, Ole, now I would like to leave two of you together, but before I disappear, I would like to thank everyone for your loving support, for being here with us. Uh, there were many things online for the last three days, uh, lots of things, actually in total 18 events in just three days. So, this is our last interview and right after that at 9 p.m. there is going to be a streaming of Pracownia Fagociste Bassoon Ensemble so please come back to watch it on Facebook or on YouTube. It's going to be a premiere of um, arrangements done by Christian Omar Rones. So something worth coming back to. But now please enjoy Roger Bernstein being interviewed by Ole Christian Dahl. Well, perhaps I'll start myself talking. Uh, I'm extremely old. For instance, I started to play the bassoon in 1946. And I've been playing that instrument ever since. I still play and I'm now 88 and I still I'm fascinated with the instrument. And this last three days have been amazing to hear this talent from people and the amazing ideas that people have. I would like to talk about some of those uh, talks we've had uh, briefly, because I don't want this to be just an hour talking about my long life and the various uh, excitements I've had with different conductors. I've been very lucky to have been living in the second half of the 20th century at a time when there was very many great conductors uh, and almost all of them I have played for and it's been a tremendous honor that. So I can say that playing the bassoon is, it's, we have a profession which doesn't require any work because every day we're playing. So that's really me. I can tell you a lot about myself, but I don't want to spend the whole time doing that. <laughs> okay, now what do you can ask me? Well, first of all, uh, I'm very honored to be able to be part of this. And I want to say a tremendous thank you to Arek, uh, also to Christian and the whole Prakovnia team for making this possible, um, that we have the ability to share knowledge uh, across the internet like we do today. Uh, and that's one of the things I would like to talk to you about, Roger 
because obtaining information has changed very much in the last years. Um, and I think we all pursue things that we find important, but the click of a button is very different than actually doing the journeys and you know seeking out the mentors and teachers. So when I came to study with you, Roger, one of the things we spoke about immediately was to be able to sing on the bassoon. Um, and it was that it's such a vocal instrument. It was very obvious that I wasn't able to sing very well at the time. Um, and one of the first things you had me doing was actually Concona studies. Um, and you mentioned a very, very, you mentioned uh, this man, Muchetti, but with such nobility and depth when you said his name that I remembered this must have been a very interesting man. Would you care to tell us a little bit about Muchetti? Yes, okay. Um, I was in the orchestra in southern Switzerland in 1958 to 1961 for three years. And that is only one hour away from Milan, which has a scala. And I very soon managed to meet the first bassoon, who was Enzo Muggetti, who was a very, very strong character. Uh, he, I went to some of his uh, lessons at the conservatory. It was very serious business. All his students had to dress properly. I mean, you didn't wear jeans in those days, but you had to wear a proper suit and tie and look smart. And when he came in the room, you expected to stand up and say, buongiorno, maestro. And it would go ahead from that. And he was very, very strict, but absolutely marvelous. And I got on superbly well with him. But I went to see him the first time when I was already in the orchestra, I hadn't been very long there, and I wasn't speaking very good Italian then. And, uh, but I wanted to meet him and he didn't, he spoke some French and we managed to converse. And I went to his flat and he said, well, let's have a look at your instrument. So I pulled out this instrument, which was a Mollenhauer. I liked the instrument very much, actually. It was a Molinar. And he looked at it, and then he started doing some tests on it, and he said, it leaks everywhere. It's terrible. We'll have to work on it. And he just com completely took over the kitchen, and his wife said, I'm not going to come back for the next three hours. She disappeared. And then he started to work on the instrument, and he worked till 2 o'clock in the morning. 2 o'clock. I could not stop him. And he says, now I think it's working better. You can go back and do your next session. And it was a winter's day in Milan with thick fog. And I had to drive myself back to Lugano and find the Lugano Road. It was absolute hell. I couldn't find anybody, anybody who was in bed. And there were <laughs> no signs that I could understand. It was complete panic. It took me three hours. I got in at about half past eight. For a, for a nine o'clock rehearsal, and I got into that rehearsal. That was my first meeting. But afterwards, I met him over many, many years, and he was very, very good teacher. And the thing he always said, si deve cantare sul fagotto. You must sing on this instrument. He'd spent his life in the opera, and he knew so much about singers, and he played with so many marvelous singers that um, I always remember that. Il fagotto si deve far cantare, you must make it sing. So that was my first meeting with him. And then I met, met him right up to the end of his life. And he, I still keep in touch with his son, who's now retired, of course. I mean, the son then was about nine years old. And now he's retiring. 
I have to just say that my class I've had in Geneva has really been a class of great teachers because at that class I had, of course, Ulla Christian, but I also had Kim Walker, who is, um, well, she was for eight years, I think, in Bloomington, Indiana, head of the uh, bassoon department. And then as dean, she went to Sydney for about six years. And now she is dean in Texas, uh, somewhere near, well, it's Dallas, really. It's, it's called the, the University of Texas, I think. And, um, and I've also had Carlo Colombo, for instance, who's a marvelous teacher. And in London, um, Graham Sheen, who has now retired from teaching after many years at the Guildhall School of Music, which is in fact where I taught him many years ago. Anyhow, so that's a start. And that's a wonderful start because that was also the link um, coming from a rather sort of technical way of playing when I came to study with you. Uh, I think I played the Jolivet on the entrance exam and I thought I was pretty good, yeah. And I, wrote, I remember then coming into the lesson, you know, being proud of getting into the conservatory in Geneva and, you know, continuing the path of, of my teacher who said, this is the way to go. Robert Runner said, you need to go and see Bernstingel. Uh, I also knew other famous Norwegian bassoon players like Hannestal who studied with you. So I felt this is fantastic. So I'm going to go and make the best impression I can uh, with the Jolivet. And I remember that first lesson when you said, yeah, Jolivet, uh, you know, schön und gut, but let's play some C major and see if we can really make it sing. So it was uh, a very special moment, sort of turning it all around and actually focusing on the very, very vocal way of playing. Um, the Concorna studies were accompanying me all the time. Um, is, was it something you always did with the students? Or was it just, you know, people that sounded like, uh, you know, well, like I did? On my um, early life, I spent a lot of time trying to meet different people, not necessarily bassoon players. For instance, uh, Marcel Moise, a great French flute player, uh, and he gave classes in England every summer, and I used to go to those. <clears throat> and I think it was marvellous. And he had a book which was called in English... Um, town uh, tone development through melody and he had all these melodies from different operas everything you know from uh, just you name it it was there and lots of french music of course and he would get his uh, the, the his on master classes who get students to play and he asked me to play the bassoon so i had to play some of these things to him too <laughs> with the with the flute book, of course. He said, "Oh, play the, the, that one from the Tales of Hoffman." So I imagine you know, it was but I, I, I'm pretty good at sight reading. Actually, so I didn't have too much trouble. And I just remember how he was really interested in how people phrased what they yeah. did with the melody. The melody had to say something to you. It, it was going somewhere. It was asking a question and perhaps then answering the question. And you had to do that. He wasn't worried about playing a thousand notes a minute or anything. It didn't in interest him at all. And uh, so I always was interested. That's why I went to see Mugetti. I always wanted to see different people and talk to them. Another one who had a lot of effect was in Germany. It was... Um, uh, 
Henke, who was the first person in the, in the Westdeutsche Rundfunk in, in, um, in Hamburg. Yes, in Hamburg. And he was marvelous, marvelous. What was the name of that marvelous one who was such an excellent pianist? Uh, he, in the, in the, the place known for its contemporary music. Darmstadt or something. Oh, in uh, Freiburg, in Freiburg. SVR no, Freiburg. I can't remember his name, he was a marvelous pianist, but I saw him too. And, uh, you know, I just got different ideas from people all the time. That's why this is so good. These, uh, the, um, uh, th these days we have in, in, in doing these sort of courses is just amazing. You learn so much. There's something early. I mean, that's Ola, you said, um, Nowadays, you know, everybody says, oh, yeah, yeah, you just record it, record yourself and listen. We didn't do anything like that. You couldn't do that. You know, I just for fun, since hearing Bram talking and playing, amazing things he can do, <laughs> I just looked up on YouTube. And it, as the French would say, it's, it's a choice without end. So it's, it, it, there was just dozens, dozens yeah. of things he'd done. If you look up Roger Bernstein, you won't find one. I've done hundreds of recordings, all of the symphonies of Tchaikovsky, of uh, Vorjak, many, many Mozart, all the piano concertos of Mozart, all these things I've done. You don't know how I'm playing them, but I was in the London Symphony Orchestra doing these, doing Bolero, the Sac de Printemps with, uh, with Abado and also with, with Bernstein, but, but you can't get these on YouTube. I don't think so. Anyhow, you won't find me at all. But you look at you look at Bram, and, and it's it's an embarras du choix. That's what they was an embarrassment of choice. Anyhow, things have changed a lot in my lifetime, and that's inevitable. So here you've got a really olden here looking at you, who's been through all this stuff. You know, my first days in the orchestra were quite amazing. Just to tell you, when I joined the London Philharmonic Orchestra, believe it or not, as first bassoon, 1956, it was, we had the prom season, and in the first week at the prom, we played all the, no, we played the third, no, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and Manfred symphonies, four in that week. And the only one I'd played before was the fifth, which I'd done in the Royal College of Music. So I was reading these pieces, and of course the orchestra, they all know them. They just have one <laughs> rehearsal, and the evening you gave the problem. That's what it was then. It was just one rehearsal for a concert. And they were amazing. I mean, the first clarinet, for instance, a bit like Popoff, actually. Popoff says he knows all these classical works that are in his mind. He's got that he can play them from memory. The first clarinet, if we had the unfinished symphony, for instance, or Beethoven 5, he wouldn't even open the part. He said, well, I know it, I don't need it. He didn't. Played it perfectly. And, you know, there were people like that in the orchestra. And then this, this young man comes in, he's never played these things, they couldn't believe it. But they were nice to me and helpful, I must say, apart from the second bassoon, who absolutely hated me because he wanted to get the job and didn't get it. That's another story. <laughs> So, yes, what would you like me to talk about? To you, Ola, you've gone. Something's gone wrong. Is no one hearing me anymore? Oh, yes, everything is fine, Roger. I just, uh, it keeps popping in and out a little bit of the internet. But the last thing I hear was you were playing, um, you had one hour session for your things in the orchestra. 
Well, things are and very... That was the first season. That was the first season. The first, we had a week at the Proms when they played those four Tchaikovsky symphonies. Four, five, six, and the Manfred Symphony. And I hadn't played any of them before. Oh, and I had played <laughs> the fifth. The fifth I played, the only one. Well, it's actually, I had a similar experience when I started in the Danish radio um, because, of course, the Danish radio has a, a very proud Carl Nielsen tradition. And in the, one of the first weeks I played as principal there, we had to play all the symphonies in one week. And I hadn't played any of them yet. So, I mean, I still, f I found a recording on, on YouTube, actually, when I'm there. And I'm pale as a ghost, Roger, because, of course, I, I hadn't played any of these symphonies. And I remember the, the conductor asking the GP, saying, are there any questions? And I, and I lifted my hand up because I wanted to ask something I didn't understand at all. And the principal client, he took my hand and I said, enjoy the ride, he said. So... <laughs> And then, of course, I thought, okay, this is a time where I don't ask any questions. But, I mean, going back, how was that life? I mean, diving into orchestral life in London in these things. I mean, there was no other way than learning by doing, was there? No. No. Not at all. But, you know, we, we were very lucky because there were not so many bassoon players. Uh, we, most of us were taught by Archie Camden. Now, Archie Camden was born in 1888. I've just looked him up and I know that. He, he was born <laughs> in 1888. And when he was 16, he was studying the piano in the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. And the, they had a new conductor for the Halle Orchestra, which was Karl Richter, come from Germany. And when he heard the bassoon playing in the orchestra, he thought that is not meant to be possible. So he brought over two of his players from Germany. And they came to England and they stayed there until the First World War. But he also brought with him an Adler bassoon. I don't know why he didn't bring a heckle, but he brought an Adler. And he took it to the Royal College of Music, to the, the Royal Northern College of Music, and said, look, I will give you this instrument and a scholarship for one of your students to study it because we need this bassoon and not this funny thing that they're playing at the moment. And Archie thought, well, this is fine. He took it. He was 16 years old. And at 18, he was already in the Halle Orchestra. And from, so he was the first Englishman to play the German um, system bassoon. And uh, amazingly, to the rest of his life, and he was over 90 when he died, he played this same bassoon that had been originally given to him by, when he was a student. And for instance, it's a very simple instrument, have very few keys on it. On the rim joint, there were no trills, nothing, not even an E-flat trill. It just had three, <laughs> three thumb keys and no, nothing on the crook, no crook key at all. Just had a thing you could open or close. And <laughs> it is true, I mean, and, and he played everything on that. He did the first recording of the Mozart Bruce and Concerto in, I think, 1928 um, with... Hamilton Harsey conducting, and you can hear it, it's amazing. It, it, to all of us today, we find it very dry playing. There's absolutely no suggestion of, of vibrato ever. It's very efficient. <laughs> I mean, beautiful tonguing, very... You, you can hear Archie Cannon, for instance, with Toscanini and the BBC Symphony Orchestra in 1938. He recorded once 
perhaps even twice, the, the Beethoven symphonies, including the Beethoven four, he didn't know what double wow. tonguing was. He never heard of double tonguing. You, you tongue. <laughs> he used to tell us in yeah, class. Yeah. He said, "Just always have an old reed in your pocket, and when you're waiting for the bus, just do some tonguing." That's what his idea of tonguing was. That's all we heard about it, really. <laughs> but he was. He I was, actually, I actually have. He must have been a very inspirational teacher, also. But he was very, Mr. very good on getting a good technique. And, and I mean, every lesson started with the weak scale, which means you had to do all right. the different things with it. You had to do it in thirds and fourths and the arpeggios, and mm. you had to do it in a certain way that he wanted to hear. And he would be leaning over the piano, working out how he was going to get through the next week. He wasn't actually listening. Uh, and there's all uh, <laughs> now do the Milder study in that do do the the scale and arpeggio study in the same key. So you do that, and he'd be back on the piano and thinking, God, yes, I've got to find a reed for God's sake. He wasn't very happy with his reed. He used the same reeds for months. Never made reeds. He was, was a funny man who lived in. He'd been in the Halley Orchestra called Poppleton, actually. And he lived in the south of England, retired, and he made reads, which cost four and sixpence each. Four and sixpence is probably uh, it's difficult to imagine what that would be now. About, about 20 pence in England, I think. That's what they cost. You'll go to his caravan, you'd have to sit on the outside, and he, he would he'd make the reads, and he'd bring them out to you, and you gave him pounds, <laughs> and you, you've got four reads. Fine, you're off. And Archie used these reads. God knows how wow. he made it. I learned nothing about reads from Archie. All I learned about reads from Nucetti was absolutely marvellous with reads. And mm. he made reads right from the beginning. He'd actually gouged out the cane. He didn't have any machines yeah. at all. No machines, because he'd been taught to do it like that by his teacher in, in um, Torino when he was young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what so, an amazing I thing. Read, but I didn't learn it. Nowadays, you see, you've got, it's so easy with reeds because you can get reeds which are probably really well shaped and profiled. And you just put them together and bind them and then cut the top off and they virtually play. I mean, it, it, things are so different now. Um, but I, I've made my own reeds for decades and decades and you know I've had terrible times sometimes when I just haven't found a read but most of the time I've managed to get by with what I've got so that's that and I've put a head at times with reads I must say <laughs> like forgetting the reads altogether and you arrive at the concert or you get your student together and you're like Christ I forgot my reads then you have to borrow one from someone else and in a bassoon section. Of course, they're not going to give you a good one. And you're playing first bassoon. <clears throat> so you have to play Tchaikovsky Fifth Symphony on this terrible read. And you're like, hell ever am I going to go? But somehow you do it because you have to. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing I, I remember very much also from our, our lessons in Geneva. I mean, no matter what kind of uh, preparation I did for solo repertoire, we always did orchestral excerpts. There was always a link into the orchestral repertoire, which is also which my students also see now. Don't you know that little little solo from this symphony or this? That reminds me of this. There was always 
a, a wonderful connection to the orchestral work all the time. And that was, I felt we were trained in a sort of, in a very orchestral way. And that was, I mean, I assume this was the plan all along also for you. I mean, uh, we were bassoon players, we, we play in orchestra. Yeah, we were definitely bassoon players, orchestral players. Occasionally we went out in front and played solo, but very rare on the whole. And, you know, we never made any recordings, ever. You know, I did, for instance, with uh, Andre Previn, who was a conductor of the London Symphony for some years, uh, a piece he particularly liked was the Elgar um, romance, you know, the, the, the little bassoon piece. He loved that. Mm. And he, he used to do a very successful programme on the television, which mm. is called uh, Andre Previn's Music Night. And it, all sorts mm. of things he did on that. He was absolutely amazing. Uh, but a bit like Leonard, Leonard Bernstein. Millions of people watched it. It was so popular. And and he said to me, oh, wouldn't you like to play, we'll play the Elga? Would you like to do that? So I did Lovely. it. Live, of course, no recording. I, said, I did this thing. <laughs> at, uh, I, I remember it was in, in 1973. It was actually 1973. And uh, I did this. And, of course, I have no... I, I seem to remember it didn't go very badly. I thought it was quite good. <laughs> and, uh, but I've got no proof of it. And um, I... Asked the BBC, you know, if, if they could find anything. And they said, oh, no, we haven't kept anything. We've got things going back five years or something. But no, no, 1973, nothing there. So, you know, in those days, you played something. Because you know, I also played that in Hollywood, in Hollywood Bowl. Well, that was also in Previn, because he really liked it. <laughs> I did Hollywood Bowl. I didn't think I'd be heard at all. But with the microphones and things, it sounded like a trombone. No, and there are four <laughs> And he also got me to play the Mozart concerto and the Weber in, in the festival hall. And, and, you know, these were things that I, I wouldn't have got from any other conductor, I think. This was very friendly in that way. Well, how, how lovely from Previn. I mean, he was a, a, a born communicator also then, a communicator between the, the audience, you know, the, the orchestra musicians and the audience but also a communicator in the sense of featuring the bassoon then as a soloist instrument also. I mean, the way you explain it, it sounds a bit like Leonard Bernstein did also in American he television. He was very also. much like Leonard Bernstein. He had a marvellous talent. I mean, he was a superb pianist. You, if you played, as we did several times, the Mozart quintet with, uh, you know, with the winds, you, yeah. you felt it perfect. He, he was so musical and his jazz playing was absolutely marvellous. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure you all know his trio. Yeah, he, fantastic. He his yeah. number at that time, uh, which is another story. The uh, bassoon player in the Pittsburgh Orchestra, lovely woman. Uh, and he wrote this piece and, and a sonata for her too. So we're very lucky he had that love affair there. I think by the time he'd, 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 he died, which was last year, I think, he'd had five wives, apart from anyone else. He's had lots of women, very good ones. Good jazz singer, one of them was. Previn was a, had a lot of, uh, I liked very much, I must say. Great conductor and great musician. And um, it, it's so friendly. That was the thing. He was always friendly and he always admired good playing in the orchestra he, and appreciated it. You know, he appreciated oh. playing. Not like George Sell, for instance. He didn't do <laughs> anything in the orchestra. 
It's a great conductor. If, if, <laughs> if I may ask, Roger, was there one conductor where you felt incredibly close to musically? That was, you know, that somebody that just did the music exactly as he imagined it. Well, I would say without hesitation, uh, Isvan Kertes. The Hungarian maestro. Remember that, Isvan Kertes. He came out of uh, Hungary in 1956 when there was the revolution and the, the Soviets moved the tanks in. And with, like a great many musicians, he got out. And uh, we, Dorati was another one, of course. Yeah, and yeah. Um, who worked a lot with us too. But Kurtish became first conductor. You, you know, when Z Zell died, he was conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra. They actually asked the orchestra members who would be their favorite conductors to ask if they wanted to take the job as chief conductor, which they did. It, of course, they didn't say that you could say what you like because what the people who decide who's going to come are the committee. Yeah. Anyhow, the one who came right at the top with only one person who didn't vote for him was Isvan Kante. And the one who came right at the bottom was Marzell. <laughs> who got the job? Who, who got, got the, the job? job? Marzell got the job. <laughs> oh. I remember just a, just a quick connotation there from from Mazel because apparently somebody asked him once this rhythm in Beethoven for him, 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 him. How should we play it? Oh, it's easy, Mazel, Mazel, Mazel. That is nice. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't think he had an issue with confidence, that man. So. But how interesting. But you also worked with the young Abado, didn't you? Claudio was, was chief in LSO also oh, in, back well, in the day. Time. I'm about eight years with him. Yeah, I did the first recording we ever did in London, in Kingsway Hall. We have this marvellous hall in London called Kingsway, where all the big recordings were done in the 1950s and 60s. And even uh, early 70s, I think. It belonged to the Methodist Society, who decided it was such a valuable property in, the, in central London that they would sell it, and they did. And there's now a hotel there. This marvellous place, uh, which all the great recordings with the Philharmonia Orchestra, with Schwarzkopf and with Fischer mm. and these marvellous things, they're all done there. Uh, the, the recordings with Fischer Diskow and Gerald, Gerald Moore, they're all done in this hall. It's all gone. Wow. I have that one, Winterreiser. Yeah, yeah. With Gerald Moore. That's fantastic. We did a lot of recordings with, with those Marlon singers and uh, a lot of Marlon indeed. A lot of Marlon. And um, it was a great tragedy that that hall has memories for me because uh, when I, in 1955, <laughs> 1955, uh, the Philharmonic Orchestra were going to get to America with uh, Herbert von Karajan. And, um, you know, I, I just, I didn't know anything about this. I was at the Royal College of Music with Archie Camden. Anyhow, three weeks before they were supposed to leave, the second bassoon, and those in, the, in those days, if you were gay, it was difficult. 
he was gay. It was very difficult. And I don't know the story, but he committed suicide. So they had to get him very quickly. Uh, so the, the management telephones, Archie Camden, the Royal College of Music, and I found myself doing this audition. Right. And so I went to the Kingsway Hall. I was told to go there. And, you know, the, the players had to stay back from, you know, they only got an hour break between two recording sessions. And they had to spend it listening to this bloody chap playing a bassoon. But anyhow, <laughs> I, I heard this Beethoven violin concerto going on there. And in fact, it was um, Milstein conducting the Beethoven violin concerto with Carrie conducting. And wow. so it finished, and I was asked to go in. No piano, of course. And some of the orchestra, all the windwinds and a few of the string leaders were there. So we've got to get, get this through this as quick as possible. So, so play us something. Play us the Mozart. So I played the opening of Mozart up to, well, probably about three or four minutes of it. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Mr. James, Cecil James was the first person. Mr. James, have you got something for me to play? Oh, no, Mr. Carrier, I didn't bring, I wasn't told to bring anything. Well, give him the part of the Beethoven. So anyhow, I got the Beethoven. Oh, lovely. And luckily, I'd played that in the Royal College. I knew those solos. <laughs> so I played oh. them. I played, you know, the, 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 the most difficult one is a, it's a slow movement, actually. Just to get those, yeah, yeah. you know, sol, sol, la, si. It's so difficult, though. It doesn't seem difficult, but it is. Um, anyhow, I played these, and Carrie Ann said, uh, yeah, expect it. Yeah, it's on this. So I said, uh, well, I don't know. He said, play the Le Sacre, the, the Rite of Spring. Everybody knows that. Well, I had a ghastly bassoon, which was a cola, but it was very good in the high register. And I wasn't right about it at all. I just played it. And Marianne said, yeah, game by Essen, dusky. That was my audition. I had the job. And I went to, went to America for a month, which is one of the most exciting things in my whole young life, which I could talk about because the orchestra was so amazing. I must have been. I mean, it must have opened up the whole, you know, image of the world completely. Well, the thing about the orchestra was that it, this was in 1955. It was about 10 years after the end of the war. Everybody wanted to go to America. Uh, Sir Thomas Beecham, with the Royal Philharmonic, had been in 1953. They went on the Queen Mary. And um, so this was only the second orchestra that had been from England. And everybody wanted to see America. So there were several members of quartets who just went for the trip, and sat at the back of the strings just to go for the trip. And of course, the, the soloists were marvelous. The first horn was Dennis Brain. I don't know whether all your young people here have heard of Dennis Brain. If you haven't, look him up and listen to some things he did. I mean, he was he was very tragically killed in a car accident uh, when he was only 38 years old, and he was just quite amazing. Uh, and there were people like that in the orchestra. I mean, the horn section, for instance, they would play a Mozart divertimento, which was just... Two oboes, two horns, and strings. 
And they, he, Carrion played it with a huge orchestra, all the string players, yeah, the whole lot there. And it sounded like a, a violin concerto. They all played so well. And this beautiful horn play. And of course, the other player was marked. And I would, you know, I wasn't involved. I just listened to these things and I just thought it was absolute heaven to hear this music played like that. And the, but that is also a magic cue, Roger, because yeah. I think one of the things that you told me is, Ulla, you need to listen to music. You need to go to concerts and you need to, you know, enrich your, your you know, idea of music. And this is something I find a little problematic these days. I don't think people go enough to concerts. I think listening to a recording isn't the same. Uh, the live experience of sound is so important. I think it's absolutely true. I did go to lots and lots of concerts. Uh, and today, you know, it's so easy. You just get this YouTube, you can, you ask for the trout quintet or something and they offer you 12 versions of it or something. But if you go and hear a group playing it in a beautiful place, it, it's nice, it's trout, you need to have a really good venue to play. It, it's something yeah. so special. You know, there's a very special recording of that with Carrion playing the Carrion, sorry, Darren playing the piano, and uh, Jacqueline Dupre the cello, and Meta Zubin Meta yeah. playing the double bass, and um, Pellman is playing viola, and Zuckerman's <laughs> playing first violin. I mean, it's a, and they did this for the BBC. That I have seen that on YouTube, and it's amazing because. They got so much fun out of it playing. And it's yeah, just lovely. Of course, yes. Absolutely lovely. Work. Anyhow, I did go to a lot of concerts and I always went to hear Gwydion Brook. Now, Gwydion Brook is a name that young players here, you must know, because he's probably the finest bassoon player of the 20th century. I mean, he, he was so amazing. Uh, also, excellent jazz player, by the way. Uh, and I heard him play the Weber Concerto, which he recorded when he was 26 years old, I think, with the um, Liverpool Symphony and Dr. Dr. Bolt. No, it wasn't. It was uh, Malcolm Sargent, Dr. Malcolm Sargent conducting. The, the last movement is, is like champagne. No, I know you can all do it now, but we couldn't in those days. And to, and to hear him playing that and that speed and that perfection and the way he just, the slow moment, it was just perfect. Every trill was so beautifully done. You know, the last the middle bit with the two horns and the bassoon, it's so lovely. And just yeah. before that start, just that trill was perfect time. And of course, all this was done in one take, all those things. You never did a second take. No. We never did. I mean, when I played with Jack Briner, I played in his, it was called the London Wind Solos, and we did all the recordings of the Mozart's. Uh, quintets, uh, octets, and then grand partie. So we, everything it was we did actually, we could find. And Haydn, Feldparty, and uh, we did a lot of things. I can't, oh, um, Fidelio, too, the, the wind version. Oh. Lovely. Anyhow, we did all these things, but sometimes we had a BBC broadcast, and, and Jack Ryber said, Well, we'll get along at about three. I think it's half past five, we're on. Uh, on Line, you know, not record, nothing recording, it was just done live. And we'd get there at three o'clock and set up. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, listen to an A from the first oboe, who was a beautiful player called Terence McDonough, who's first oboe in, in Beecham's orchestra. And we, then we'd play a little bit, start, you know, the C minor octet and do a few bars. And I mm. was thought, oh, we know this. Let's just top and tail. Now, top and tail, <laughs> we play the beginning and the end of the movement. He said, it'll be fine, that's all. So we top and tail each movement for the programme and then we go and have coffee and then come back. <laughs> that was the rehearsal. <laughs> now, Amazing. Yeah, if you hear those recordings today, hmm. you will hear them with the years you all have. You think, oh, my God, that's not very... How did that get by? Well, it got by because that was the take. You know, you had to get exactly. it right this time. If it wasn't quite right, bad luck. Yeah. I mean, I made a terrible mistake once. I oh, made so many terrible mistakes. But we were recording the Eureka Symphony with Sir Adrian Bolt. Now, Sir Adrian Bolt was very English, uh, but he conducted very well. And he was a very, very polite man. And he always knew the names of all the first people in the audience. I wouldn't say knew everybody's name, but he knew most of them. And we were doing this, and we were doing the slow movement, and I heard the playback, and there was a little bit there. And I thought, oh, golly, I really need to play that much more. That's not good enough. So at the end of the listening, he was going to go back on, and I said, excuse me, Sir Adrian, might I say something? Would it be possible just to cover that little bit where I play the everything? Because it, it just, Yes. You know that bit? It's... It, it's oh, yeah. The fugato, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just... It starts with one. F, do, nothing. But, so nothing. anyhow, at the end of the break... All the orchestra come on, so Adrian comes on and says, Ah, oh, gentlemen, we were all gentlemen, by the way, there were no women in the orchestra. Gentlemen, very good, very good take, um, very good. However, Mr. Bernstein would like to just do a little bit again in the slow movement, if you don't mind. You know, people looking around, my God, who is this chap? You know, I'd only been in the orchestra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, it's not, it's very, very difficult when you start on an orchestra, not to get in trouble with the old timers, it really is. I've had it is a bit of a minefield. It is a bit of a minefield. And I wanted to get into a little bit of a minefield also, just because, I mean, you've had such a you know fantastic career teaching and playing. Looking back, Roger, I mean, you've had so much success with your teaching. Was there ever a time where you doubted teaching or was it always something that was so natural to you? Because you obviously had so much success. So was there ever when you thought, ah, how can I do this? How can I? Because I think uh, okay, all I, of us. Well, I think, well, it come down to that. I mean, I think, you see, I've never written any books. I did, I used, I did one time write things for my students, telling them a few things not to do yes. in the orchestra. And yes. you could do, for instance, if a conductor asks you to do something and you really don't want to do it. Yeah. Don't uh, uh, don't say anything. Just just say not. You know. You say okay. good. And then you've got two choices. You either go and talk to him in his room during the next break. Don't do it in front of the orchestra. Exactly. Or 
you do it the way you wanted to do it anyhow on the concert, and the chances are that he won't even notice that you're not doing what he asked for. I mean, little <laughs> things like that. But, you know, Ulla's written this marvellous book, which, uh, is Strill's book, it's amazing because it's so succinct. I mean, it's it's short, and yet everything's in there. And and uh, Ulla knows this well, but I think what he says about embouchure and the, the muscles at the side of the mouth and the, the middle and the U and the V, depending whether you're doing a diminuendo or crescendo, it's just marvellous. And I think that book is amazing. Uh, but I do want to say that I, uh, in Geneva, I seem to have been very lucky with my students in having very good teachers because Kim Walker's also written a book, which I think I've got somewhere here, because um, I think I've brought it to show you. Yeah, it's a huge book called... Spirited wind play. Now mm. that is got everything. It's got everything from preparing for exams to, uh, well, I mean, for auditions for poetry to being nervous. A lot about reads. A lot about breathing. And interestingly, what Ulla says about the the mouth muscles, she says exactly the same thing. Exactly the same. Uh, Kim has written this huge great tome, and it's absolutely fascinating to read. I don't suggest you all buy it, but you might try to get your conservatives to buy a copy of it. It's published by uh, Bloomington, the Indiana University, Indiana University Press, Kim Walker. Very good. And oh, by the way, another thing I learned from from meeting people. I mean, someone else I met who had a tremendous effect on my playing and everything was Sol Schoenbach, who had been the first bassoon in the Philadelphia Orchestra for many, many years. And then he left the orchestra and he started, he got money to start a, a music school for deprived people in Philadelphia. Uh, it's called the Settlement Music School, which is tremendously successful now. And I got a lot from him. And one thing, he his, one of his colleagues was called Kincaid. Mm. Kincaid oh, the flute, the first flute in the Philadelphia yeah, exactly. for decades. Mm. Well, he had a way of teaching uh, which his students just loved it very much because he was a very likable person. And one of his students later wrote a book which he called Kincaidiana. That's what it looks like. Kincaidiana. Exactly. And th there's so much in that which is relevant to us all. For instance, something just comes to my mind. How many notes are there in a triplet? Like you say to a student, how many notes are there in a triplet? Oh, three, four, but you don't necessarily play the fourth. It's a difference. Yeah, there are course. four notes in a triplet. And then how to play the rhythm that amateur orchestras never get right in the Beethoven Symphony, in the first movement of the Beethoven Seventh. You hear that? And he says, no. Yeah. What you have to do is to think, bum, 
And going into what is this artistry? What is it all about? And picking out, making, I mean, one of my pictures about studies is that, you know, the, the technique is the, the salad bowl that you have to have it big enough and no cracks and stuff. But the salad itself is actually, you know, all the music, uh, inspirational parts you can collect from everywhere. And luckily, if you then have a teacher or a mentor who can actually make a balsamic vinaigrette and combine your technique with your musicality things, well, then you're good to go. So, I mean, I've tried to continue this idea of collecting as much musical information as possible. It's so inspiring. Okay, can I say something about, um, what was his name? Tomasz, you're right. Yes. Uh, Wesolowski? Tomasz, who was talking about playing Vivaldi, and he was talking about, uh, about ornamentation. Well, if you hear the recordings that, Maurice Allard did of, of uh, Vivaldi concertos. They're absolutely lovely, beautiful. Mm. He, he just plays them beautifully. But he virtually puts no ornamentation in them at all. And I've done a lot of things with him. I, you know, I've been on juries about four times. I've visited him in Paris. I've been to his, to his I told you before, I've been to his classes and things. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, he said, well, I'm not going to do it because he, it sounds so good as it is. It doesn't need anything else. If he wanted something else, he would put it in. And I, I think he's got a lot of point because it's better not to do any than not do it well. Anyhow, <laughs> one of the many books that I acquired is this American book by someone called Betty Bang Major. Now this, I don't know how I can get these to you, Betty Bang Major, and it's called Ornamentation, free ornamentation, and this is in the 18th century, Vivaldi to Beethoven, really. Um, what she does is she's just collected dozens of examples of Couperin, Rameau, Vivaldi, Telemann, when he has shown something uh, with the bare notes mm. and then how he would decorate it to give some people ideas so they can do it in the right style. And exactly. this to have on your shelf is very, very useful. Very classy. And I think when you studied with me in Geneva, didn't I have a big poster on the wall? You which, did. Which is called the Wesenliche Manieren, <coughs> Ornamentieren. Now, that is a big poster with a whole lot of examples of how you can uh, ornament. Ornament. I think, you know, just add a few notes, that's not good enough. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. You know, like, uh, you know, when I hear the Brahms concerto and then the violinist decides to do his own cadenza, I think... No, you've got plenty of other chances to do your own thing. Brahms <laughs> wrote such a marvellous cadenza. Oistrach never needed to play anyone. No, no, no. Why do you? 
that. You know, so I, I think a, a bad cadenza is, is awful too. Keep it brief. Yeah. <laughs> I have to ask you this, Roger, because yeah, I also uh, when I've whenever I have had the, the the chance to be a soloist, and if there has been a cadenza, I could. It's always quite swift. Don't want to bore them. But I had this this thing I wanted to ask you. Um, is there a particular orchestral piece that you would love to play again if you had the chance? Is, is there anything that is so close to your heart that you would love to play again in, you know, the orchestra of your dreams, kind of? Golly, that's a difficult one because... Um, I because I know, I know you love music so much. So it's well, you can, I mean, Claudio Rao, Claudio Rao, the great pianist, was asked once, with the Brahms concertos, which is the one you prefer playing? And he instantly said, the one I'm playing. <laughs> you know, and you know, if I'm playing a Haydn symphony, I'm very, very happy. I don't want to play the Mozart G minor. I, that's I exactly what they wanted you to say, Roger. That's exactly what they wanted you to say. <laughs> and I'm so pleased my little plan worked out amazingly well because basically what you taught us was love what is on the stand and be, you know, as devoted as you can into the music like that. And you know. That's that's something that is such an important thing, and it's such a gift that we have this opportunity to dive into music like this. So I'm super happy that you answered that question. Um, now, a very technical question about teaching. Do you think teaching has changed in the last 30 years? Well, yes, I think it has because of the way that students can listen to themselves by recording the, themselves. I think that's very good. Right. I think what um, uh, Nicolai, oh, was Nicolai Henrik, the one who's now in, in the city of Birmingham, right. New Orchestra, uh, he said some interesting things. And uh, one of them was uh, playing things very, very slowly. It's such as the Mozart concerto. I just hear the quality of every note. Yeah. And not worried about playing fast at all. The fast it'll come. You, when it, you know, when you have to do it, you do it. And you remember, you, I have to. I just have to interrupt you because I remember playing uh, something for you, and your comment to me was, "Ula, do you have a plane to catch?" And I said, <laughs> "No, no, not really." Well, why do you play it so fast? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm at the old school. I mean, there's a recording of the um, Fidelia, the opera, with Klemperer conducting. Yeah. And um, it, it's it's all very slow. Yeah. But it's superb. It's absolutely lovely. And I absolutely love it. And when I hear it very fast, which I do sometimes now, I think they're not really enjoying the music. Not in, he loved the music. He was... That's how he did. He, you know, the, the Beethoven symphony with uh, Klemperer took a long time because he did all the repeats in the last movement too, <laughs> and it was never fast. Yum, but a little, little, rump, but a little, little, dee, little, not fast than that. He, he didn't want it fast than that. You could hear everything. It was yeah. just music. But my father, who was very keen on a lot of things, he was a good musician. <laughs> he was also very. Uh, he he he. He got things came out of the top of his head. I asked him to come along to a concert when I was playing with Carrigan. In fact, I was playing no with Klemperer, and it, it was the G minor symphony mm. of Mozart. I was playing second symphony, and at the end of the symphony, my father stood up and said, "Boo! Too slow!" 
I never just wanted to go through the floor. She was so embarrassed. And people were, and it was, and it was really slow, but it was lovely because it's such a lovely orchestra. And he liked Well, maybe the double basses could get their orchestra exit right for once. Yeah, maybe that's that, that's I, I still remember double bass auditions can always be a bit of a thing. Or have they started yet? You can't really tell sometimes. You know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, but another question, Roger. Um, we never spoke about teaching directly, but it's become such a natural thing for so many of us. Um, you mean what, what, teaching with? Uh... Virtual teaching. Well, no, no, actually in, in, in person, because I mean, I, I just was, you know, going through the list a little bit of, of your students that there is, there are so many of your students that actually teach. And that must be something, uh, how does that make you feel? Did you feel that you passed the torch on in a good way in this way? A little bit. I'd like to think that, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. And then, of course, for me, the, the very important thing also for this um, that what you have achieved is, you know, a lot of good bassoon players and teachers, but the individuality of the person and player and teaching is very strong. Was this something you deliberately emphasized in the way you, you brought us up in this way? I mean, Carlo is very different from me, but we are both students from you. I think I, I didn't want to, I don't want everybody to sound the same uh, any more than I want all the orchestras to sound the same. Exactly. I, I remember, you know, years and years ago with my friend uh, Bill Waterhouse, because we were very close mm. all our lives, really. I mean, he's gone now, unfortunately. But he, we were talking about that and he said, no, we all, we all should have our own characteristics. So that, you, you would hear the oboe or something say, oh, that must be the Philharmonia because it sounds like Jock Sackley. Exactly. Oh, yeah, oh, so, oh, no, it sounds like Leonard Gooseman's. It must be um, uh, Leon Gooseman's. That must be the Beecham's Orchestra or something, you know. Because it's or if, yeah, or if, if you hear the 1979 recording with London Symphony and uh, Abado doing the Barber of Seville, that must be Bernstinger because that bassoon has a lot of pain. <laughs> so, and that's a bridge to another thing you spoke about. You said, all of the sound needs ping. What was, what was, where did that idea come from? <laughs> the ping idea? I don't know, really. Uh, golly. Yeah, it's true. I do. I, I like a ping on the sound sometimes. Not yeah. always, but a ping. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It was it, a very clear I thing you said. But the ping in the sound was was projection and the sort of a bell shape of of the sound, which was lovely. But I, I did overdo it one time, uh, trying to play right to spring for you, and he said, "Yeah, ping is." It's nice, but could you try to play the high C as if you were not getting an ice pick in the forehead? <laughs> well, yeah. I, d I do remember that very well. <laughs> but the idea of ping was wonderful. So that's, but those things as a teacher, they grow into a, a certain sort of signature thing that we did. So for me, the singing stuff with the concorde, the ping stuff, but also the individuality was, was remarkable. Do, do you think we still have individuality in bassoon playing today. Oh, yes. No, I do think that, yeah. 
Do you think it has been shown over this weekend I mean, in I heard Eric saying that um, Adrian Williams piece, which I thought was lovely, and, and the group he played, played so well. I was told him the percussion player was just the first. Um, I really enjoyed that, and he has a very special sound, I think. Yeah. It's got, I think it's got something to do with that lovely 1936, whatever it is, echo, which is a very thin, the wood is extremely thin on it, because I've got a 6,000, it's very similar to that. And I, and I, I remember I, that 6,000, Roger, because you lent it to me uh, in Geneva. <laughs> I was allowed to play on that, and, and you, ne- you mentioned in sort of this by sentence oh by the way uh this instrument was played in the lso and i, I remember starting shaking you know and this you know with the, with the <laughs> but it was that was your instrument you played pushners also in lso but this instrument particularly you played quite a lot didn't you yeah i play mainly that six thousand but that's the one i played Valero on and the, yeah. the Sacre and things, that's all on the 6000. Uh, one thing I had done on the 6000, I had the, the bottom tone hole, tone hole or bottom D pushed down a bit further down, mm. moved down, so that that instrument has a beautiful bottom D. And I, don't, I didn't know why, I, don't, I never understood why Heckel on all those instruments they tend to have a sharp bottom D. There's no, you just have to move it down about a radius. That's half the diameter of the hole. It has to be done by a very good man. It's difficult because you've got to put a plug in. Mm. Uh, But I had that done on that instrument, and I thought that was a very good move Mm. in London. But um, no, I I mean, I love those old instruments. I really do. And they have so much character, don't they? I have a little bit of a feeling that with a lot of the modern instruments, one has to sort of add the character to make them uh, to make them interesting. Whereas a lot of the old instruments already have their character, and you have to sort of learn to live with them and you know respect their 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 good and bad days, kind of. Yes, you have to. There was a word which has gone out of the woodwind language now, but you had to humour a note. <laughs> that meant. You know, oh, that note, middle F, it's always sharp. You had to humour it to make it not sharp. <laughs> you know, if you're starting the Schubert octet with the, with the, with the horn also playing an F, they don't yeah. like it if it comes that sharp. Yeah. So, so you, you have to humour it. And it, if you play an old heckle, there are notes that need humouring. And now the heckles are much, much better as far as the intonation is concerned. They're much better. That's true. But it is a very interesting point with the older instruments. What I find also, a uh, lo- lovely guy that you also know, Chris Cunha, had this beautiful picture about older instruments, uh, and especially the heckles, that they, they purr faster than, than modern instruments, like the cat purrs. So with less effort, you will already get some kind of estrosivo to the sound. Very much like a Viennese horn that, you know, has smaller menzua and, you know, already in Meso Forte, it becomes very soloistic. And I thought that was a very interesting picture because, I mean, with the modern instruments, we blow so much mass of air before it starts shining. And that was a very interesting thing with the, with the older instruments. But unfortunately, the orchestras are getting louder and louder. I mean, you also played a 13,000 in Swiss Romand, I recall. No, I played, um, you mean the 6,000? No, well, I thought you had, you had a modern one. I, 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 when I got there, I got a 10,000. 
that one I remember. And I, I played at both of them actually. Right. That, that was from 1961. Wow. Nice instrument. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which instrument do you play on these days? I don't. I don't play much. No, I play on a twelve thousand. Makes life no. easy. <laughs> so you don't have to humor every note. Is that what no, I don't. Not at all. Flowing in <laughs> more or less. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. So no, this absolutely wonderful to talk about these things. Um, what do you think the impact has been for this weekend for people who have been listening? the Praconia Festival in these days. I mean, it's been quite a varied thing. Well, I, I think they've given them a lot to think about. In fact, uh, you know, for auditions, I thought that um, Nikolai was excellent telling people how to prepare for auditions. Um, one thing he didn't say, which I always tell my students, I think, is that... Uh, you're going to meet lots of friends there that you've met before, of course, also in audition. You'll get, you're going to play better than any of them. It's not a social occasion. And if no. you draw a number, which means you're not going to be playing for the next hour, don't stay and listen. He says put earplugs in. I think you just get out and go walk. Yes. Because you're not going to make or any of those excerpts better in that last half hour or whatever. It's no, absolutely exactly. pointless to practice that you've done that. And the other thing he didn't say is don't arrive at the last moment. Because I once did a, a, an audition many years ago for the Barisha uh, Rundfunk, and um, it just happened. I had a D minor Vivaldi concerto on the night before, and I worked out if I got the night train, I got in about 5.30 in the morning in Munich, and it would be all right, which is what I did. <laughs> So I just sat around in the station for three hours or something and then went to the concert hall to do the audition. And I have to say, I did get into the final, but I didn't get the job, uh, which if, if I would be German, I would probably have a German family now if I had got the job. So perhaps it was all meant that way, but I didn't get the job. <laughs> right. I mean, that's... Um... The choice of going from being such a highly esteemed London players and then going to, to Switzerland, I mean, what made this move? Was it the, the, your inner voice telling you, okay, I need to see more of the world? Or was the London life too, too hectic? Or I mean, principal and LSO is quite a dream job. It was a good job. And I did 15 years there. Yeah. I, I just thought... Um, well, I love the mountains, you see. I love the mountains, and I, I I always spend my holidays in the mountains, and I've always skied all my life. And um, my mother was a skier. She skied before the First World War. She was really, she loved skiing. So I had skiing in my blood, and I had the, the mountains. And I, I, after the war, we went, the whole family went to the Switzerland, and I just loved it. That was in 19, uh, 1946. The year I started playing the bassoon, actually. We went to Switzerland. I always loved it. Uh, so I, a chance to go to Switzerland, I, I wasn't too worried. I, I always sort of moved from orchestra to orchestra. I've been to many different orchestras. The one I was in the longest, of course, was the Swiss one. That was 20 years. I didn't stay 20 years in any other orchestra. 15 in right. the LSO, only two in the Royal Philharmonic, and only two in the London Philharmonic. And three in Lugano. And how long in Lugano? Lugano, three, yeah, three years. Three years. Yeah. 
and I I loved it there. You know, it was a lovely place, and you could play any concerto you liked there. They got true. fifty francs, extra fifty francs. It's very nice. Play concerto. <laughs> <laughs> I played the Bellevue for the first time. I'd never heard of it before. But Bill Waterhouse said, "Oh, try this Bellevue. We've just come across it." Well, I mean, people who play Bearwell for me are very brave. You know, it's a Swedish composer. You know, for a Norwegian, that is always a little bit of a thing. But, uh, you know, but tell us about the Nucio. This piece also has a special meaning for you, doesn't it? Which one? The Nucio. Ah, the, oh, Nucio, yes. Well, Nucio was the chief conductor there in, in Lugano. Uh, he was Swiss, Swiss German, but he, he lived in Ticino, which is the Italian part. Now, he was a good, a good composer, actually. Uh, and ah. um, he wrote that piece, which I played there. Have you, have, you've probably all tried to play it. I find it very difficult, I have to say. I think it's difficult. It was quite, it was fun learning it. I, I was prepared to try anything. I was amazed. It, it's, it's a lovely piece. Yeah, it's good. It's good. You learn a lot in that piece. He, he wrote a lot of pieces uh, for orchestra, and we played them all. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't have recordings of them because they often have very good bassoon solos. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've I've been very lucky in, in in. I think I've done the right things in my life. I left the LSO, which was very sad because I was. We were very friendly in the orchestra. It was like a big family. If, 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 orchestras in those days, I left in 1978. But in those days, pubs were important, public houses in London. So after a concert, we always went to the pub and had a couple of beers and talked about the concert and, and just talked. And then got in our cars and drove home. I mean, you, no one would dare do that now because it's very difficult to get home on public transport. So they don't go to the pub anymore. And in any case, you're not allowed to smoke in pubs, which is a good thing. <laughs> that bit of the <laughs> I used to go to the pub. You know, Martin Gatt was in the pub with his uh, 7,000 heckle at his feet. And he'd had a couple of pints and he leant down to pick it up. Never soon, never saw it again. You, know, it, you have to keep your foot on it. Not enough to That is true. <laughs> that is very true. Now, Roger, if um, for all our listeners out there and for, for, the, for, for the bassoon players of the coming generations, what are words of wisdom you would like to give them on the way? I mean, you've, you've had an amazing life as a, as a bassoonist and as a teacher. Are there things, I mean... Some things do come to mind for me. Go to concerts is something that, you know, obviously meant a lot to you. Uh, are there other things? Seeking out the mentors or seeking out other musicians. I mean, it's been so inspiring to hear that that was such a part of your upbringing also. Are there other things that come to mind? Well, I mean, I do think that nowadays it's quite possible to have a very good life and not be a professional bassoon player, for instance. You can still get a lot of playing with you, particularly if you live in a city. You get a lot of playing in, in amateur orchestras. Uh, and, they, and some of them are very good. I don't know whether Stephen's here. You hear Stephen? Stephen Fuller, is he here? Are you here? Is he here? I am, Roger, yes. Uh, how many orchestras do you play in? Sorry, say that again. How many orchestras do you play in in London? 
Well, I have one regular one, but uh, fortunately people ask me to play in others as well. Although that hasn't happened very recently. <laughs> Sorry, Ella? No, then you must be behaving, it seems, yeah? That's very good. Well, I, yes, I, well, I, I wasn't taught exactly by Roger about behaving in orchestras, but uh, I seem to get the same sort of instruction early on. <laughs> no, but I mean, coming back to, to young people today, of course, it's very difficult because, you know, when I did the audition to go to Lugano, for instance, there were 14, I think. And when I went to the Swiss Ramond Orchestra, I think there had been 20 people interested in the job. Uh, you know, you hear that there's a second flute job in the Boston and they had 484 applications or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. There's just so many of us playing these instruments now. So it does make it much, much more difficult than it did for we oldies. And so it, it's very difficult. I think that if you've got real talent, you will still make yourself a good life in music. Uh, I do think that. But if you've got, if you're not going to be a player as well as some people, don't worry. I think you will still get a lot out of the instrument. Perhaps you should learn another trade too. I mean, I just, fortunately, Absolutely. we never considered that because we never doubted that we would always get work because there were not so many people around, really very few, you know, sort of 15, 20 in England at that time, trying to get the jobs. There's nothing. So things have changed a lot, but I, I, there is still so much enthusiasm with these young players, and that's marvellous to see. I mean, when I, this, this bassoon band you're going to hear this evening, I mean, I've heard these bassoon bands a good many times now, and, and, and they're marvellous because everybody loves it so much. They love making that. It's lovely music, and everybody's having so much fun. But it's no good if you're going to be worried about making big money because you're not going to make big money. But is that important? My nephews and nieces and things, none of them are interested in making big money. They want to have a good life. And that's got nothing to do with yeah. good money. Nothing. I want to ask you one more uh, favor, Roger, because, I mean, that's one of the, the, the stories that, you know, I've, I've heard and been told many times. But, you know, starting off young and doing something uh, a little bit out of the ordinary, I think it involves Beethoven 9 and Carrion and Cecil James sitting up there on principle. And Carrion had, he wanted four bassoons, didn't he, for Beethoven 9? Yes. And then what happened then, Roger? There's a particular rehearsal, I think. You know what I mean where things didn't go as planned, and Carrion got slightly upset. Oh, yes, well, that was... <laughs> yeah, we were recording the Beethoven Ninth Symphony, and um, he wanted to record it in London. It's the orchestra did, because it's much cheaper to do it in London, and they were going to use the, <coughs> the, the big choir at that time, which was a Huddersfield Choral Society, which did all the big choral things. This is the middle 50s. And... Um, uh, you know, so they booked the, they booked the choir to come down to London and do it, and the conductor of the choir was Sir Malcolm Sargent, and Sir Malcolm Sargent telephoned uh, Walter Legg, the 
the manager of the orchestra and said, I hear you're going to be recording the Beethoven uh, choral symphony with my chorus. Yes, that's correct, Sir Malcolm. Well, I presume I should be conducting it. That is not correct, Sir Jeff. It will be, thank you very much. It will be Herbert von Karajan. So he cancelled the uh, English choir and got the music for Angel, uh, music for Encore in uh, Vienna to do it. So we all went to Vienna at very short notice to do that recording. And it was very interesting recordings. And uh, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf was singing and uh, Walter Berry was singing bass and I can't remember them all. Anyhow, I won't make the story too long, but what happened is in the last session, it had all been recorded, uh, but they were doing little bits because they had the time to do it. And one of the little bits was before the last D major madness at the end of the symphony uh, with the the, the um, dancers from the four soloists. And we, because I was playing third bassoons, I had nothing to play, and I was just sitting there. Cecil James would do it, and they would do this take, and then they would go and hear it, and then they come back. So we'd do another one because they, it, she was not happy on her high F, which is high. It goes up very high for this part, and um, we were doing them again. Carry on came on for about the fourth time, and Cecil James said, "I'm not going to play this again. You play Roger." And he put me to sit on the ground. And Carrie and wasn't looking at the orchestra, just starting conducting. And I knew where it started. That was that was a bit before the joy, and they did it. And then I found myself in the cadenza, which is just two clarinets and first bassoon. And I was sitting on a on a B flat, sitting on a B flat, and wondering where the hell I went down to A. And and the the uh, Walter Berry said, and he, he did the big arpeggio. Unfortunately, I didn't know what to do. I, I was still on the B flat when he went down to his A, and then Carrion opened his eyes, normally never opened and saw that the first bassoon had his bassoon on the floor. And he had the score there, never looked at it, but he did have it. And he threw it into the violas and stormed off. So I had the complete viola section turning around to see what was going on in the bassoon section. <laughs> Cecil James said, what we can do if we've got these young players who can't play? <laughs> that was the end. He never came back. That was the last session. Well, since then, I've heard that recording with the Philomonia Orchestra. And I've heard that bit. And, of course, they've taken one of the other takes with, with Cecil playing. <laughs> it's definitely all right. And it, it sounds great. It's a lovely recording, actually. And... But what, what a fantastic, fantastic memory. Amazing. <laughs> you know, I, I got away with these things somehow. But, it, but Cecil was always a bit difficult with me. I had a, had a, several little occasions with him. He played the French bassoon. I have a very... Marvellous player. Absolutely marvellous. Um, so musical. The, the, uh, Elgar, the, the Elgar romance was written for his uncle, actually in 1910 oh, wow. because um, his uncle then was the the chairman of the London Symphony Orchestra so he wrote this piece oh, for wow. the chairman who played the bassoon so he wrote him a bassoon piece that's how we've got it so it was very much Lovely. in the Cecil James family and uh, yeah very much so. absolutely marvellous now 
Roger, I, I have a very, very important question and possibly the last question. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, how, how do we manage to stay loving music the way you do and stay in such shape that you, you are? It's because it's, it's very inspirational to hear you speak about music with such devotion and love. And you, you've been around for a long time. How do you keep it alive? Well, in the time I was in Geneva, I managed to climb 43 4,000-meter peaks, wow. 43 of them, twice wow. Matterhorn, by the way, and I climbed Mont Blanc alone. Couldn't find anybody free, so I just climbed it on my own. Um, but, <laughs> now, I've always, I've always loved the mountains, and I've done so much ski touring on my own. If I it was no one was free, I'd just go, i just hope. I didn't break my leg. Uh, and uh, I've always been very energetic and I've done a lot of sailing and a lot of canoeing. I love canoeing. Love canoeing. I've had very exciting times canoeing. I've got stories about that, but I, I can tell stories all night. But I've got lots of stories about canoeing and, uh, you know, skiing, climbing, walking. Now I walk. I don't do rock climbing anymore. I used to rock climb a lot, but I've stopped doing that now. Um, no. But I, I would do easy rock climbs, but I'm not doing anything difficult. But I love walking. I do remember our our, our skiing trips from the class in Geneva, oh, yeah. <laughs> and there was the, well, one particular moment because, of course, skiing was absolutely vital for the class and for you to take us up there. <laughs> and we did have one very very exotic member of the class, Tamer. You remember this two meter Egyptian we oh, had in yeah. the class. Yes. Yeah, and of course, I mean, he, he was very nervous about this, but he was the sweetest man. And we, we you know, got him all geared up with the stuff. And then uh, he was, he, he didn't look particularly uh, confident on the skis. And then basically what we did then at the moment was, oh, you said, Tamar, come on, we just have to get going with this. You gave him a little bit of a push. And actually Tamar went down the hillside and we could basically hear him say, Roger, how do you stop? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he uh. was absolutely blue and red all over, but he, he did enjoy that. But I mean, you, you took us out for that. Uh, Mejev, I think it was. Just, you know, it was something different. But you're saying you always had a balance of enjoying music and actually staying quite healthy and actually being very fit, actually. Yes, I suppose I, I kept myself fit because the things I liked doing kept me fit. It wasn't I thought, oh, I must do that. Nowadays, or normally, not since it's everything shut down, but I do go to the gym every day for an hour. Oh, wow. Yeah, I go every every day for, well, perhaps six days a week to the gym for one hour in the morning. Uh, you know, after breakfast, I just go for an hour to the gym. It's very close, so I, it's very easy to do that. I haven't Fantastic. been doing it for the last two months now, so I, I walk a lot. I mean, when we finish here, I shall go for an evening walk for a bit. Well, Roger, I have to say this has been absolutely lovely to reconnect uh, in this way. I am absolutely delighted that we've had the chance to do this um, and that we can share a little bit from your past, but also your vision and also yeah, your way of life to modern uh, and younger players. It's been absolutely wonderful. I thank you so much. Stick and, this on uh, the wall of your stick this on the wall of your studio. Look. Oh, I will. Can you see it? 
I can see it's it. published by the Österreichische Bundesverlag V. I will go and check it out. And and then Betty Bang Mather. That was another one. Mather. Free ornamentation in woodwind music. Very good. Published by McGuinness and Marks in New York. Lovely. And now we have Kincaidiana. Kincaidiana. I don't know how you're going to find that. And then there's Kim Walker's book, uh, which is the, the um, Indiana, what's it called? University publication. Indiana University Press. It's called Spirited Wind Flame. Lovely. We all made notes of this. And I think, actually, Arik, are you there? Yes, I am. Lovely. We have our host of the evening back. Uh, so I'd like to thank two of you, Roger, for sharing all of this with us. It was very, very inspiring. And uh, I'm sure we, are, we all feel motivated and uh, having Ole Christian Dahl uh, discussing these things with you was a double treat. So it was not just one Yoda, but like having two Yodas in in one show. So thank you very much for, for doing this. Roger, you may go for your evening walk, but... No, I want to see this. this I'm going to not miss that. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have to thank you for, for inviting me to come and, and see all these occasions because it's been amazing that you can organise these things. And, Roger, um, uh, Roger, as well as Ole, you are part of the family and you will be always part of Pratovnia Fagociste and you will be always invited. And I think Agatha probably did a lot of work, did she not, for you? Oh, yes, she was super helpful, as she always is. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely marvellous. And those lovely two boys, it was lovely to see them occasionally over your shoulder. Good. And, and what a privilege <laughs> for us to... So I would like to take this opportunity to thank all our participants, all our guests, uh, uh, we had Jarek Augustyniak, Odun Halvorsen, Tomek Wesołowski, Nikolai Henriques, Michael Rabinowitz, uh, Václav Vonasek, Sebastian Stevenson, Zvina Smalis, Ole Christian Dahl, Christian Omarones, Valery Popov, Bram Van Sambek, and Roger Bernstingl. That's an amazing bunch of wonderful <laughs> people. And uh, as we've said, we do value um, how great players everyone is, but above all, we value how nice people everyone, how nice persons everyone, uh, every single one is, and how much we enjoy the vibes that you bring into Pracownia Fagociste. So thank you very much for this. It was quite a tough and intense time because over three days, we had over 20 hours of lectures and interviews. That's quite much for three days. We've already had two concerts and one concert ahead of us. So in total, it's going to be 18 events uh, for 
for those who speak Polish and English and 15 for those who speak English because we have... I think, I think Michael, Britain is saying that even though he's an oboist, he's really enjoyed all this. Yeah, Michael and Hillary Brisson have been with us on every single... <laughs> yeah, he has. It's amazing. That was really By the way, I don't know whether Michael would, would agree, but I think that the tune fraternity on the whole tend to be much more friendly to each other than oboe players. If you, if you find oboe players, they're always saying, oh, God, I can't stand that. I mean, for instance, uh, when I was in Geneva, I, I very much liked Terence McDonough. I thought he was marvellous. And I once uh, suggested to our first over there that he listened to something. Uh, and uh, a, little, a couple of weeks later, I said, um, Bernard, did you, did you listen to that? I said, she, yeah, I listened for 10 seconds. He said, I couldn't stand that tone. It's impossible. <laughs> and the sim players are not like that. <laughs> so maybe, uh, may I actually invite everyone to come back on on vision, uh, so that we can see see each other just before saying bye. There will be no talking during the the recital. Uh, may I just mention about tonight's concert? Tonight's concert was recorded three days ago, especially for this occasion. So it's a live performance. As just as, as it went, we will play it for you. Uh, a very special occasion for us because Klaas, our bassoon, Poznan bassoon class, got reunited in person after three months of social distancing. So quite an emotional time to, to actually play with real people. And for that occasion, we also invited all other students who are not part of Bassoon Ensemble. So we also have like first year students playing with us. It's just, we just got involved, got everyone involved into this project. So we would like to play this for you. And Christian uh, we is presenting six premiere pieces uh, tonight for you. So I, I'm sure you will all enjoy it. Uh, so, how lovely to have been with you for the three days. Let's do it again. Yes. Uh, um, the Zoom is not perfect. But it's still interesting to occasionally bring people from all around the world and spend some time together. So let's do it again quite soon. In the summer. Thank you very much. Enjoy tonight's concert. And well done, everyone, for completing the marathon. Almost. Bravo! Bravo. Uh, <laughs> we're going to go off Facebook now. I'm stopping the live stream. And then we can spend a few minutes if you wanted. Um, we can say some. It's not being recorded now.